Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and this is episode 306 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with The Bat. Normally, I'd give you a podcast highlight right now, but I have not been listening to any podcasts very much in the last week. My only listening has been to Book 7 of the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien. I mentioned that, oh gosh, way back in April. And it's more of the same thing, so I'm not going to bother to (laughs) fill you in on it. You either will try it or you won't, and I've already mentioned it. So I've got nothing to highlight Also, it was our 32nd wedding anniversary last week. We went to a wonderful little French bistro near here, and it was the first time to go. So we were really happy that it was like being in Paris. They did everything just right, and they did the food straight up. None of this Texas French style with the jalapenos and blah, blah, blah. No, roast chicken was roast chicken. The best roast chicken in the world. So I liked that so much that I was thinking, wow, I'm not going to be able to come back here for a long time. And then I went, wait, my birthday is Wednesday. And so we're going to take Hannah and Mark, her husband, and we're going to go back. Because why not eat French food twice in one week? That just makes it a good week, right? (laughs) Ah, Paris. I do not think they're getting nearly as good a treatment in Miss Cornelia's house with no cook, no housekeeper, only Billy. Well, also Lizzie, but I don't feel like Lizzie's doing a lot of cooking. She's doing a lot of screaming and a lot of trembling and a lot of being upset. But I don't really seem to have read about many meals happening there. The last couple of chapters really were great, I thought. For one thing, I loved Miss Cornelia's way of checking out the new gardener using three different technical terms for illnesses, well, and baldness, to see that he had no clue what was going on. So that was really wonderful. And I also really was interested in Dr. Wells. We don't trust him now, do we? He's so shady, unlocking the door and telling everybody, well, you better leave. Why don't you come to my house? Oh, you shouldn't stay here tonight. Or, well, if you do stay, lock the door and don't let anyone in. Oh, my goodness, that would be terrible. So that all made me, of course, not trust him a bit. He wanted to leave things open so someone could get in from the outside. Was that him? Was it a conspirator? Hmm, I don't know. Well, we'll be finding out more this week as Detective Anderson starts questioning people and things unfold. And I'm just going to let the story unfold from there. So let's dive in for more of The Bat. The Bat by Avery Hopwood and Mary Roberts Reinhardt Chapter 7 Cross Questions and Crooked Answers 
All unconscious of the slur just cast upon her forty years of single-minded devotion to the Van Gorder family, Lizzie chose that particular moment to open the door and make a little bob at her mistress and the detective. "'The gentleman's room is ready,' she said meekly. In her mind, she was already beseeching her patron saint that she would not have to show the gentleman to his room. Her ideas of detectives were entirely drawn from sensational magazines, and her private opinion was that Anderson might have anything in his pocket from a set of terrifying false whiskers to a bomb. Miss Cornelia, obedient to the detective's instructions, promptly told the whitest of fibs for Lizzie's benefit. The maid will show you to your room now, and you can make yourself comfortable for the night. There. That would mislead Lizzie without being quite a lie. My toilet is made for an occasion like this when I've got my gun loaded, answered Anderson carelessly. The allusion to the gun made Lizzie start nervously, unhappily for her, for it drew his attention to her, and he now transfixed her with a stare. This the maid you referred to? he inquired. Miss Cornelia assented. He drew nearer to the unhappy Lizzie. What's your name? he asked, turning to her. "'Elizabeth Allen,' stammered Lizzie, feeling like a small and distrustful sparrow in the toils of an officious python. Anderson seemed to run through a mental rogues gallery of other criminals named Elizabeth Allen that he had known. "'How old are you?' he proceeded. Lizzie looked at her mistress despairingly. "'Have I got to answer that?' she wailed. Miss Cornelia nodded inexorably. Lizzie braced herself. Thirty-two, she said with an arch toss of her head. The detective looked surprised and slightly amused. She's fifty if she's a day, said Miss Cornelia treacherously, in spite of a look from Lizzie that would have melted a stone. The trace of a smile appeared and vanished on the detective's face. Now, Lizzie, he said sternly, do you ever walk in your sleep? I do not, said Lizzie indignantly. Don't care for the country, I suppose. I do not. Or detectives. Anderson deigned to be facetious. I do not. There could be no doubt as to the sincerity of Lizzie's answer. All right, Lizzie, be calm. I can stand it, said the detective with treacherous suavity but he favored her with a long and careful scrutiny before he moved to the table and picked up the note that had been thrown through the window. Quietly, he extended it beneath Lizzie's nose. Ever see this before? He said crisply, watching her face. Lizzie read the note with bulging eyes, her face horror-stricken. When she had finished, she made a gesture of wild disclaimer that nearly removed a portion of Anderson's left ear. "'Mercy on us!' she moaned, mentally invoking not only her patron saint, but all the rosary of heaven to protect herself and her mistress. But the detective still kept his eye on her. "'You didn't write it yourself, did you?' he queried curtly. "'I did not,' said Lizzie angrily. "'I did not!' "'And you're sure you don't walk in your sleep?' The bare idea strained Lizzie's nerves to the breaking point. When I get into bed in this house, I wouldn't put my feet out for a million dollars, she said with heartfelt candor. Even Anderson was compelled to grin at this. Then I won't ask you to, he said, relaxing considerably. That's more money than I'm worth, Lizzie. 
Well, I'll say it is, quoth Lizzie, now thoroughly aroused, and flounced out of the room in high dudgeon, her pompadour bristling before he had time to interrogate her further. He replaced the note on the table and turned back to Miss Cornelia. If he had found any clue to the mystery of Lizzie's demeanor, she could not read it in his manner. Now, what about the butler? he said. Nothing about him, except that he was Courtly Fleming's servant. Anderson paused. Do you consider that significant? A shadow appeared behind him deep in the alcove, a vague, listening figure. Dale, on tiptoe, conspiratorial, taking pains not to draw the attention of the others to her presence. But both Miss Cornelia and Anderson were too engrossed in their conversation to notice her. Miss Cornelia hesitated. Isn't it possible that there is a connection between the colossal theft at the Union Bank and these disturbances? She said. Anderson seemed to think over the question. What do you mean? He asked as Dale slowly moved into the room from the alcove, silently closing the alcove doors behind her and still unobserved. Suppose, said Miss Cornelia slowly, that Courtly Fleming took that money from his own bank and concealed it in this house. The eavesdropper grew rigid. That's the theory you gave headquarters, isn't it? said Anderson. But I'll tell you how headquarters figures it out. In the first place, the cashier is missing. In the second place, if Courtly Fleming did it and got as far as Colorado, he had it with him when he died, and the facts apparently don't bear that out. In the third place, suppose he had hidden the money in or around this house. Why did he rent it to you? But he didn't, said Miss Cornelia obstinately. I leased this house from his nephew, his heir. The detective smiled tolerantly. Well, I wouldn't struggle like that for a theory, he said, the professional note coming back to his voice. The cashier's missing. That's the answer. Miss Cornelia resented his offhand demolition of the mental card castle she had erected with such pride. I have read a great deal on the detection of crime, she said hotly. And, well, we all have our little hobbies, he said tolerantly. A good many people rather fancy themselves as detectives and run around looking for clues under the impression that a clue is a big and vital factor that sticks up like, well, like a sore thumb. The fact is that the criminal takes care of the big and important factors. It's only the little ones he may overlook. To go back to your friend the bat, it's because of his skill in little things that he's still at large. Then you don't think there's a chance that the money from the Union Bank is in this house? persisted Miss Cornelia. I think it very unlikely. Miss Cornelia put her knitting away and rose. She still clung tenaciously to her own theories, but her belief in them had been badly shaken. If you'll come with me, I'll show you to your room, she said a little stiffly. The detective stepped back to let her pass. Sorry to spoil your little theory, he said, and followed her to the door. If either had noticed the unobtrusive listener to their conversation, neither made a sign. The moment the door had closed on them, Dale sprang into action. She seemed a different girl from the one who had left the room so inconspicuously such a short time before. There were two bright spots of color in her cheeks, and she was obviously laboring under great excitement. She went back to the alcove doors, 
they opened softly, disclosing the young man who had said that he was Brooks the new gardener, and yet not the same young man, for his assumed air of servitude had dropped from him like a cloak, revealing him as a young fellow at least of the same general social class as Dale's, if not a fellow inhabitant of the select circle where Van Gorders revolved about Van Gorders, and a man's great-grandfather was more important than the man himself. Dale cautioned him with a warning finger as he advanced into the room. Shh, shh, she whispered. Be careful. That man's a detective. Brooks gave a hunted glance at the door into the hall. Then they've traced me here, he said in a dejected voice. I don't think so. He made a gesture of helplessness. I couldn't get back to my rooms, he said in a whisper. If they've searched them, he paused as they're sure to. They'll find your letters to me. He paused again. Your aunt doesn't suspect anything? No, I told her I'd engaged a gardener, and that's all there was to it. He came nearer to her. Dale, he murmured in a tense voice. You know I didn't take that money, he said with boyish simplicity. All the loyalty of first love was in her answer. Of course, I believe in you absolutely, she said. He caught her in his arms and kissed her, gratefully, passionately. Then the galling memory of the predicament in which he stood, the hunt already on his trail, came back to him. He released her gently, still holding one of her hands. But the police here, he stammered, turning away. What does that mean? Dale swiftly informed him of the situation. Aunt Cornelia says people have been trying to break into this house for days, at night. Brooks ran his hand through his hair in a gesture of bewilderment. Then he seemed to catch at a hope. What sort of people? he queried sharply. Dale was puzzled. She doesn't know. The excitement in her lover's manner came to a head. That proves exactly what I've contended right along, he said, thudding one fist softly in the palm of the other. Through some underneath channel, old Fleming has been selling those securities for months, turning them into cash, and somebody knows about it and knows that the money is hidden here. Don't you see? Your Aunt Cornelia has crabbed the game by coming here. Why didn't you tell the police that? Now they think because you ran away. Ran away? The only chance I had was a few hours to myself to try to prove what actually happened. Why don't you tell the detective what you think? said Dale at her wit's end. That courtly Fleming took the money and that it is still here. Her lover's face grew somber. He'd take me into custody at once and I'd have no chance to search. He was searching now. His eyes roved about the living room. Walls, ceiling, hopefully, desperately looking for a clue, the tiniest clue to support his theory. Why are you so sure it is here? queried Dale. Brooks explained. You must remember Fleming was no ordinary defaulter, and he had no intention of being exiled to a foreign country. He wanted to come back here and take his place in the community while I was in the pen. But even then... He interrupted her. Listen, dear. He crossed to the billiard room door, closed it firmly, returned. The architect that built this house was an old friend of mine, he said in hushed tones. 
We were together in France, and you know the way fellows get to talking when they're far away and cut off. He paused, seeing the cruel gleam of the flamethrowers, two figures huddled in a foxhole, whiling away the terrible hours of waiting by muttered talk. Just an hour or two before, a shell got this friend of mine, he resumed. He told me he had built a hidden room in this house. Where? gasped Dale. Brooks shook his head. I don't know. We never got to finish that conversation. But I remember what he said. He said, you watch old Fleming. If I get mine over here, it won't break his heart. He won't want any living being to know about that room. Now Dale was as excited as he. Then you think the money is in this hidden room? I do, said Brooks decidedly. I don't think Fleming took it away with him. He was too shrewd for that. No, he meant to come back all right. The minute he got the word, the bank had been looted, and he'd fixed things so I'd be railroaded to prison. You wouldn't understand, but it was pretty neat. And then the fool nephew rents this house the minute he's dead, and whoever knows about the money... Jack! Why, isn't it the nephew who is trying to break in? He wouldn't have to break in. He could make an excuse and come in any time. He clenched his hands despairingly. If only I could get hold of a blueprint of this place, he muttered. Dale's face fell. It was sickening to be so close to the secret and yet not find it. Oh, Jack, I'm so confused and worried, she confessed with a little sob. Brooke put his hands on her shoulders in an effort to cheer her spirits. Now listen, dear, he said firmly. This isn't as hard as it sounds. I've got a clear night to work in, and as true as I'm standing here, that money's in this house. Listen, honey, it's like this. He pantomimed the old nursery rhyme of the house that Jack built. Here's the house that Courtly Fleming built. Here somewhere is the hidden room in the house that Courtly Fleming built. And here somewhere... Pray heaven is the money in the hidden room in the house the courtly Fleming built. When you're low in your mind, just say that over. She managed a faint smile. I've forgotten it already, she said, drooping. He strove for an offhand gaiety that he did not feel. Why, look here. And she followed the play of his hands obediently, like a tired child. It's a sort of a game, dearest. Money, money, who's got the money? You know. For the dozenth time, he stared at the unrevealing walls of the room. For that matter, he added, the hidden room may be behind these very walls. He looked about for a tool, a poker, anything that would sound the walls and test them for hollow spaces. Ah, he had it, that driver in the bag of golf clubs over in the corner, he got the driver and stood wondering where he had best begin. That blank wall above the fireplace looked as promising as any. He tapped it gently with the golf club, afraid to make too much noise and yet anxious to test the wall as thoroughly as possible. A heavy, dull reverberation answered his stroke. Nothing hollow there, apparently. As he tried another spot, again thunder beat the long roll on its iron drum outside in the night. The lights blinked, wavered, recovered. The lights are going out again, said Dale dully, her excitement sunk into a stupefied calm. 
Let them go. The less light, the better for me. The only thing to do is go over this house room by room. He pointed to the billiard room door. What's in there? The billiard room. She was thinking hard. Jack, perhaps Courtly Fleming's nephew would know where the blueprints are. He looked dubious. That's a chance, but not a very good one, he said. Well, he led the way into the billiard room and began to tap at random upon its walls, while Dale listened intently for any echo that might betray the presence of a hidden chamber or sliding panel. Thus it happened that Lizzie received the first real thrill of what was to prove to her, and to others, a sensational and hideous night. For coming into the living room to lay a cloth for Mr. Anderson's night suppers, not only did the light blink threateningly and thunder roll, but a series of spirit raps was certainly to be heard coming from the region of the billiard room. Oh, my God, she wailed. And the next instant the lights went out, leaving her in inky darkness. With a loud shriek, she bolted out of the room. Thunder, lightning, dashing of rain on the streaming glass of the windows, the storm hallooing its hounds. Dale huddled close to her lover as they groped their way back to the living room, cautiously, doing their best to keep from stumbling against some heavy piece of furniture whose fall would arouse the house. There's a candle on the table, Jack, if I can find the table. Her outstretched hands touched a familiar object. Here it is. She fumbled for a moment. Have you any matches? Yes. He struck one, another, lit the candle, set it down on the table. In the weak glow of the little taper, whose tiny flame illuminated but a portion of the living room, his face looked tense and strained. It's pretty nearly hopeless, he said. If all the walls are paneled like that... As if in mockery of his words and his quest, a muffled knocking that seemed to come from the ceiling of the very room he stood in answered his despair. "'What's that?' gasped Dale. They listened. The knocking was repeated. Knock, 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 knock. "'Someone else is looking for the hidden room,' muttered Brooks." gazing up at the ceiling intently as if he could tear from it the secret of this new mystery by sheer strength of will. Chapter 8 The Gleaming Eye It's upstairs! Dale took a step toward the alcove stairs. Brooks halted her. Who's in this house besides ourselves? he queried. Only the detective, Aunt Cornelia, Lizzie, and Billy. Billy's the Jap? Yes. Brooks paused an instant. Does he belong to your aunt? No, he was Courtly Fleming's butler. Knock, 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 knock. The dull, methodical rapping on the ceiling of the living room began again. Courtly Fleming's butler, eh? muttered Brooks. He put down his candle and stole noiselessly into the alcove. It may be the chap, he whispered. Knock, 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 knock. This time the mysterious rapping seemed to come from the upper hall. If it is the chap, I'll get him. Brooke's voice was tense with resolution. He hesitated, 
made for the hall door, tiptoed out into the darkness around the main staircase, leaving Dale alone in the living room beset by shadowy terrors. Utter silence succeeded his noiseless departure. Even the storm lulled for a moment. Dale stood thinking, wondering, searching desperately for some way to help her lover. At last a resolution formed in her mind. She went to the city telephone. Hello, she said in a low voice, glancing over her shoulder now and then to make sure she was not overheard. One, two, four, please. Yes, that's right. Hello, is that the country club? Is Mr. Richard Fleming there? Yes, I'll hold the wire. She looked about nervously. Had something moved in that corner of blackness where her candle did not pierce? No, no, how silly of her. Buzz, buzz on the telephone. She picked up the receiver again. Hello, is this Mr. Fleming? This is Miss Ogden, Dale Ogden. I know it must seem odd my calling you this late, but I wonder if you could come over here for a few minutes. Yes, tonight. Her voice grew stronger. I wouldn't trouble you, but it's awfully important. Hold the wire a moment. She put down the phone and made another swift survey of the room, listened furtively at the door, all clear. She returned to the phone. Hello, Mr. Fleming. I'll wait outside the house on the drive. It's, it's a confidential matter. Thank you so much. She hung up the phone, relieved, not an instant too soon, for as she crossed toward the fireplace to add a new log to the dying glow of the fire, the hall door opened, and Anderson, the detective, came slowly in with an unlighted candle in his hand. Her composure almost deserted her. How much had he heard? What deduction would he draw if he had heard? An assignation, perhaps? Well, she could stand that. She could stand anything to secure the next few hours of liberty for Jack. For that length of time, she and the law were at war. She and this man were at war. But his first words relieved her fears. Spooky sort of place in the dark, isn't it? He said casually. Yes, rather. If he would only go away before Brooks came back or Richard Fleming arrived. But he seemed in a distressingly chatty frame of mind. Left me upstairs without a match, continued Anderson. I found my way down by walking part of the way and following the rest. Don't suppose I'll ever find the room I left my toothbrush in. He laughed, lighting the candle in his hand from the candle on the table. You're not going to stay up all night, are you? said Dale nervously, hoping he would take the hint. But he seemed entirely oblivious of such minor considerations as sleep. He took out a cigar. Oh, I may doze a bit, he said. He eyed her with a certain approval. She was a darned pretty girl, and she looked intelligent. I suppose you have a theory of your own about these intrusions you've been having here, or apparently having. I knew nothing about them until tonight. Still, he persisted conversationally, you know about them now. But when she remained silent, is Miss Van Gorder usually of a nervous temperament? Imagines she sees things and all that? I don't think so. Dale's voice was strained. Where was Brooks? What had happened to him? Anderson puffed on his cigar, pondering. Know the Flemings? 
he asked. I've met Mr. Richard Fleming once or twice. Something in her tone caused him to glance at her. Nice fellow. I don't know him at all well. Know the cashier of the Union Bank? He shot at her suddenly. No. She strove desperately to make the denial convincing, but she could not hide the little tremor in her voice. The detective mused. Fellow of good family, I understand, he said, eyeing her. Very popular. That's what's behind most of these bank embezzlements, men getting into society and spending more than they make. Dale hailed the tinkle of the city telephone with an inward sigh of relief. The detective moved to answer the house phone on the wall by the alcove, mistaking the direction of the ring. Dale corrected him quickly. No, the other one. That's the house phone. Anderson looked the apparatus over. No connection with the outside, eh? No, said Dale absent-mindedly. Just from room to room in the house. He accepted her explanation and answered the other telephone. Hello? Hello? What the... He moved the receiver hook up and down without result and gave it up. This line sounds dead, he said. It was all right a few minutes ago, said Dale without thinking. You were using it a few minutes ago? She hesitated. What use to deny what she had already admitted for all practical purposes? Yes. The city telephone rang again. The detective pounced upon it. Hello? Yes. Yes, this is Anderson. Go ahead. He paused while the tiny voice in the receiver buzzed for some seconds. Then he interrupted it impatiently. You're sure of that, are you? I see. All right. Bye. He hung up the receiver and turned swiftly on Dale. Did I understand you to say that you were not acquainted with the cashier of the Union Bank? He said to her with a new note in his voice. Dale stared ahead of her blankly. It had come. She did not reply. Anderson went on ruthlessly. That was headquarters, Miss Ogden. They have found some letters in Bailey's room which seemed to indicate that you were not telling the entire truth just now. He paused, waiting for her answer. What letters? She said wearily. From you to Jack Bailey, showing that you had recently become engaged to him. Dale decided to make a clean breast of it, or as clean a one as she dared. Very well, she said in an even tone. That's true. Why didn't you say so before? There was menace beneath his suavity. She thought swiftly. Apparent frankness seemed to be the only resource left her. She gave him a candid smile. It's been a secret. I haven't even told my aunt yet. Now she let indignation color her tones. How can the police be so stupid as to accuse Jack Bailey, a young man and about to be married? Do you think he would wreck his future like that? Some people wouldn't call it wrecking a future to lay away a million dollars, said Anderson ominously. He came closer to Dale, fixing her with his eyes. Do you know where Bailey is now? He spoke slowly and menacingly. She did not flinch. No. The detective paused. Miss Ogden, he said, still with that hidden threat in his voice. In the last minute or so, the Union Bank case and certain things in this house have begun to tie up pretty close together. 
Bailey disappeared this morning. Have you heard from him since? Her eyes met his without weakening. Her voice was cool and composed. No. The detective did not comment on her answer. She could not tell from his face whether he thought she had told the truth or lied. He turned away from her brusquely. I'll ask you to bring Miss Van Gorder here, he said in his professional voice. Why do you want her? Dale blazed at him rebelliously. He was quiet. Because this case is taking on a new phase. You don't think I know anything about that money? she said, a little wildly, hoping that a display of sham anger might throw him off the trail he seemed to be following. He seemed to accept her words, cynically, at their face value. No, he said, but you know somebody who does. Dale hesitated, sought for a biting retort, found none. It did not matter. Any respite, no matter how momentary, from these probing questions would be a relief. She silently took one of the lighted candles and left the living room to search for her aunt. Left alone, the detective reflected for a moment, then picking up the one lighted candle that remained, commenced a systematic examination of the living room. His methods were thorough, but if when he came to the end of his quest he had made any new discoveries, the reticent composure of his face did not betray the fact. When he had finished, he turned patiently toward the billiard room. The little flame of his candle was swallowed up in its dark recesses. He closed the door of the living room behind him. The storm was dying away now, but a few flashes of lightning still flickered, lighting up the darkness of the deserted living room now and then with a harsh, brief glare. A lightning flash, a shadow cast abruptly on the shade of one of the French windows, was to disappear as abruptly as the flash was blotted out, the shadow of a man, a prowler, feeling his way through the lightning-slashed darkness to the terrace door. The detective? Brooks? The bat? The lightning flash was too brief for any observer to have recognized the stealing shape, if any observer had been there. But the lack of an observer was promptly remedied. Just as the shadowy shape reached the terrace door and its shadow fingers closed over the knob, Lizzie entered the deserted living room on stumbling feet. She was carrying a tray of dishes and food, some cold meat on a platter, a cup and saucer, a roll, a butter pat, and she walked slowly with terror only one leap behind her and blank darkness ahead. She had only reached the table and was preparing to deposit her tray and to beat a shameful retreat when a sound behind her made her turn. The key in the door from the terrace to the alcove had clicked. Paralyzed with fright, she stared and waited, and the next moment a formless thing, a blacker shadow in a world of shadows, passed swiftly in and up the small staircase. But not only a shadow. To Lizzie's terrified eyes it bore an eye, a single gleaming eye, just above the level of the stair rail, and this eye was turned on her. It was too much. She dropped the tray on the table with a crash and gave vent to a piercing shriek that would have shamed the siren of a fire engine. 
Miss Cornelia and Anderson rushing in from the hall and the billiard room respectively, each with a lighted candle, found her gasping and clutching at the table for support. "'For the love of heaven, what's wrong?' cried Miss Cornelia irritatedly. The coffee-pot she was carrying in her other hand spilled a portion of its boiling contents on Lizzie's shoe, and Lizzie screamed anew and began to dance up and down on the uninjured foot. "'Oh, my foot, my foot!' she squealed hysterically. "'My foot!' Miss Cornelia tried to shake her back to her senses. "'My patience! Did you yell like that just because you stubbed your toe?' "'You scalded it!' cried Lizzie wildly. "'It went up the staircase!' "'Your toe went up the staircase?' "'No, no! An eye! An eye as big as a saucer! "'It ran right up that staircase!' "'She indicated the alcove with a trembling forefinger. "'Miss Cornelia put her coffee-pot and her candle down on the table "'and opened her mouth to express her frank opinion of her factotum sanity.' but here the detective took charge. "'Now see here,' he said with some sternness to the quaking Lizzie. "'Stop this racket and tell me what you saw.' "'A ghost!' persisted Lizzie, still hopping around on one leg. "'It came right through that door and ran up the stairs. "'Oh!' she seemed prepared to scream again as Dale, white-faced, came in from the hall, followed by Billy and Brooks, the latter holding still another candle." "'Who screamed?' said Dale tensely. "'I did,' Lizzie wailed. "'I saw a ghost.' She turned to Miss Cornelia. "'I begged you not to come here,' she vociferated. "'I begged you on my bended knees. "'There's a graveyard not a quarter of a mile away.' "'Yes, and one more scare like that, Lizzie Allen, "'and you'll have me lying in it,' said her mistress unsympathetically.' she moved up to examine the scene of Lizzie's ghostly misadventure while Anderson began to interrogate its heroine. Now, Lizzie, he said, forcing himself to urbanity, what did you really see? I told you what I saw. His manner grew somewhat threatening. You're not trying to frighten Miss Van Gorder into leaving this house and going back to the city. Well, if I am, said Lizzie, with grim unconscious humor, I'm giving myself an awful good scare, too, ain't I? The two glared at each other as Miss Cornelia returned from her survey of the alcove. Somebody who had a key could have got in here, Mr. Anderson, she said annoyedly. That terrace door's been unbolted from the inside. Lizzie groaned. I told you so, she wailed. I knew something was going to happen tonight. I heard rappings all over the house today, and the Ouija board spelled bat. The detective recovered his poise. I think I see the answer to your puzzle, Miss Van Gorder, he said with a scornful glance at Lizzie. A hysterical and not very reliable woman, anxious to go back to the city, and terrified over and over by the shutting off of the electric lights. If looks could slay, his characterization of Lizzie would have laid him dead at her feet at that instant. Miss Van Gorder considered his theory. I wonder, she said. The detective rubbed his hands together more cheerfully. A good night's sleep, and he began. But the irrepressible Lizzie interrupted him. My God, we're not going to bed, are we? 
she said with her eyes as big as saucers. He gave her a kindly pat on the shoulder, which she obviously resented. You'll feel better in the morning, he said. Lock your door and say your prayers and leave the rest to me. Lizzie muttered something inaudible and rebellious, but now Miss Cornelia added her protestations to his. That's very good advice, she said decisively. You take her, Dale. Reluctantly, with a dragging of feet and scared glances cast back over her shoulder, Lizzie allowed herself to be drawn toward the door and the main staircase by Dale, but she did not depart without one Parthian shot. I'm not going to bed, she wailed as Dale's strong young arm helped her out into the hall. Do you think I want to wake up in the morning with my throat cut? Then the creaking of the stairs and Dale's soothing voice reassuring her as she painfully clambered toward the third floor announced that Lizzie, for some time at least, had been removed as an active factor from the puzzling equation of Cedarcrest. Anderson confronted Miss Cornelia with certain relief. There are certain things I want to discuss with you, Miss Van Gorder, he said, but they can wait until tomorrow morning. Miss Cornelia glanced about the room. His manner was reassuring. Do you think all this pure imagination? She said. Don't you? She hesitated. Mm, I'm not sure. He laughed. I tell you what I'll do. You go upstairs and go to bed comfortably. I'll make a careful search of the house before I settle down. And if I find anything at all suspicious, I'll promise to let you know. She agreed to that and after sending the Jap out for more coffee, prepared to go upstairs. Never had the thought of her own comfortable bed appealed to her so much. But in spite of her weariness, she could not quite resign herself to take Lizzie's story as lightly as the detective seemed to. If what Lizzie says is true, she said, taking her candle, the upper floors of this house are even less safe than this one. I imagine Lizzie's account just now is about as reliable as her previous one as to her age, Anderson assured her. I'm certain you need not worry. Just go on up and get your beauty sleep. I'm sure you need it. On which ambiguous remark, Miss Van Gorder took her leave, rather grimly smiling. It was after she had gone that Anderson's glance fell on Brooks, standing warily in the doorway. What are you, the gardener? but Brooks was prepared for him. Ordinarily, I drive a car, he said. Just now I'm working on the place here. Anderson was observing him closely, with the eyes of a man ransacking his memory for a name, a picture. I've seen you somewhere, he went on slowly, and I'll place you before long. There was a little threat in his shrewd scrutiny. He took a step toward Brooks. Not in the portrait gallery at headquarters, are you? Not yet. Brooks' voice was resentful. Then he remembered his pose, and his back grew supple, his whole attitude that of the respectful servant. Well, we slip up now and then, said the detective slowly. Then apparently he gave up his search for the name, the pictured face, but his manner was still suspicious. All right, Brooks, he said tersely. If you're needed in the night, you'll be called. Brooks bowed. Very well, sir. He closed the door softly behind him, glad to have escaped as well as he had. 
But that he had not entirely lulled the detective's watchfulness to rest was evident as soon as he had gone. Anderson waited a few seconds, then moved noiselessly over to the hall door, listened, opened it suddenly, closed it again. Then he proceeded to examine the alcove, the stairs, where the gleaming eye had wavered like a corpse candle before Lizzie's affrighted vision. He tested the terrace door and bolted it. How much truth had there been in her story? He could not decide, but he drew out his revolver nevertheless and gave it a quick inspection to see if it was in working order. A smile crept over his face, the smile of a man who has dangerous work to do and does not shrink from the prospect. He put the revolver back in his pocket, and taking the one lighted candle remaining, went out by the hall door as the storm burst forth in fresh fury and the window panes of the living room rattled before a new reverberation of thunder. For a moment in the living room, except for the thunder, all was silence. Then the creak of surreptitious footsteps broke the stillness, light footsteps descending the alcove stairs where the gleaming eye had passed. It was Dale, slipping out of the house to keep her appointment with Richard Fleming. She carried a raincoat over her arm and a pair of rubbers in one hand. Her other hand held a candle. By the terrace door she paused, unbolted it, glanced out into the streaming night with a shiver. Then she came into the living room and sat down to put on her rubbers. Hardly had she begun to do so when she started up again. A muffled knocking sounded at the terrace door. It was ominous and determined, and in a panic of terror she rose to her feet. If it was the law, come after Jack. What should she do? Or, again, suppose it was the unknown who had threatened them with death. Not coherent thoughts, these, but chaotic, bringing panic with them. Almost unconscious of what she was doing, she reached into the drawer beside her, secured the revolver there, and leveled it at the door.